This is Ashlyn, former co-host of the Top 10 Relationship Recovery Podcast, The Betrayed, The Addicted, and The Expert. I've had my challenges, but I'm also living proof that joy is possible, especially when life has not gone as planned. Every day I help women rise within to find their own healing despite their circumstances. Each episode, I will introduce you to topics that inspire you to be curious and possibly be the buffalo facing the storms in different areas of your own life. Many of the topics we talk about here may be sensitive for you to hear, such as suicide, sex, betrayal, loss, and something specific to you. Remember, these triggers are guides. Push pause, check in with yourself, and take a break if you need. Now, if you're looking for just betrayal topics, catch me over on my former podcast, where there are four years of therapeutic content, all for free. Today, we're talking about infertility and TFMR baby loss with my friend, Emma. Emma Bell is is English, but she lives in Dubai. She's a mentor to those living with bipolar and also to parents uh, going through TFMR baby loss. She's the founder of a nonprofit called TFMR Mamas, an organization that helps families after baby loss. TFMR is baby loss due to termination for medical or birthing person's health reasons. She set up this organization in 2020 after going through this type of baby loss. She was told at the beginning of her second trimester pregnancy that her daughter Willow had Edwards syndrome and would likely die in utero before reaching term. Or if she did make the it full term, she was only expected to live a few hours or days after the birth and would likely not have not leave the hospital due to extensive medical support that would be needed. After five rounds of infertility treatment, this is not a decision that she and her husband imagined they would ever have to face or make. They made the heartbreaking choice to say goodbye to their desperately wanted baby girl and start to navigate life after loss. Emma now helps others that sadly walk the same path while also working with hospitals and clinics globally to improve care pathways and provide more bereavement and trauma-informed care for the parents. Oh, I love Emma. I love <laughs> Emma. And Emma <laughs> has <laughs> oh, Emma has been on uh, the podcast. It's been a minute, but it was um, sharing your story of living with bipolar and mm-hmm. how we can show up better. And so here you are again sharing what it's like to have gone through some hard things and how we can show up better and um, maybe even advocate for ourselves when we're going through those things. Um, Emma is a, a beautiful soul and has lots to give. So let's just start. Miss mm-hmm. Emma, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm just so happy to be here in your company as always. So yeah. tell me where you want to start. <laughs> All right. Well, I think let's start with, um, I know you and Gareth were together for a while and then chose to, I want to start a family and, mm-hmm. and work through the infertility part of, mm-hmm. of choosing to create a family and then being heartbroken over and over. Um, mm-hmm. I had that small window of my life where I went through, um, years of not being able to have a child and, I know from my little experience without even experiencing the medical uh, options out there, how defeating it can be just when our bodies don't show up the way we want. 
Mm. And I know it affects partners differently. And Mm. so I felt very alone in it. And so I would love to hear just where it started for you, Emma, and and how we got to here. So we, Gareth and I were together in England, and then he got a job in Switzerland and moved there. And we did the long distance thing for a bit. And then I went to live in Switzerland with him. And he's eight years younger than me. And I had been in a marriage before him, um, but we weren't me and my ex-husband were not on the same page with so many things and having a family with him was just not on the card so we separated and then I met Gareth and to be honest I wasn't looking for a long-term partner I was looking for a summer of fun and like freedom and like you know all that and anyway along comes this amazing guy who I just thought well we can have fun together and here we are 10 years later <laughs> sounds like how I began <laughs> and I we never thought I would be with someone who was like nearly a decade younger than me anyway here we are so <laughs> and with that comes you know I didn't have I met him when I was 32 I didn't have um he was 24 um and I, I didn't have any children and neither did he and we were at different places in life and uh So when I got to like 34, 35, I suddenly thought we had the conversation. There was a lot going on in our lives. We weren't stable like we are now as a couple. And I thought, you know, you hear it all the time, don't you? Biological clock, your eggs and all of that. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to hop into a clinic. I'm going to free some eggs and then keep them on ice. And when we're ready, I'll go back and everything's going to be great. I just thought it would be so easy. So I hopped in expecting to freeze some eggs. And what happened was, is I walked into news I wasn't expecting, which was I had fertility issues and I had diminished ovarian reserve. And to freeze eggs, you really should be aiming to freeze at least 10 eggs. But because of my um, diminished fertility health, if you like, I would only be expecting to retrieve two or three eggs per round. It would take me, you know, four plus rounds to retrieve 10 eggs. 10 is really the number you need to freeze to, for the future. If you're going to freeze your eggs, um, to guarantee getting a couple of healthy embryos at the end of it. And it was going to cost me ten thousand US dollars per round. I didn't have a spare forty thousand dollars just like laying around to free some eggs when there was no guarantees. And so I was shocked. I had ten thousand dollars ready to do it, and I thought I'd be able to do it because I thought I'd have my eggs be okay. But they weren't. So I went into free some eggs, came out with an infertility diagnosis mm. um, or infertility limiting diagnosis, should I say? but I really didn't have the money to go through it. I didn't have the time to take all that time off to freeze the eggs and all of that. So I thought naively, do you know what? I'll wait. And when the time comes that we're ready to have a family, we'll tackle it then. And we'll just go straight to a fertility clinic. We'll get straight into treatment. We won't waste time and we'll tackle it that way. So I was 38 and a half. So three and a half years later, we were at a place finally where we were ready to try for a family. So we went straight down to the clinic, 
my numbers were worse than they were before. And we started treatment and we did our first round of treatment and I got pregnant and we just thought it was, this is amazing. This is it. This is the right thing. And then I had a very early miscarriage. Um, so I had a very early miscarriage and um, I was upset and I was disappointed and at the same time, I thought, well, we were lucky to have success straight away. We were probably stupid to think it would work straight away and all of those things. So we then jumped straight into another round and another round after that. That, that round failed. We then jumped into another round and then another round. So we were on our fourth round. By this point, we were into the summer and it is defeating what you said there is so right you just feel utterly defeated and i think the problem with infertility is that we all get brought up with preconceptions of when you're older you're going to just have this complete control and autonomy to just say hey i'm ready to have kids i'm going to have two kids and a white fence and a dog and a house and all of that and then guess what it's just not that easy for some it's just not that mm-hmm. easy and uh And I think that's the bit that's so difficult because in other parts of your life, certainly for me, I got taught if you just try hard enough, if you just push hard enough, you put enough effort in, you can have whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And this is the one area of life where that does not work. You can try and try and try and try and try and want and want and want and do all the right things. And for some people, that equation doesn't equal output. And I think that's the thing that's so crazy making about being in the infertility space, especially when you feel like you're getting lapped by other people and they're just, mm. everyone's popping out babies and all of a sudden all you can see is babies and prams and it's a head wrecker. Um, so anyway, our fifth round came, we changed doctors. We realized that our doctor had given us not great advice. So we changed clinics, we changed doctors. By this point, we've spent thousands and we got pregnant. And it was like a miracle. You know, we just thought, oh, this is amazing. But I was still really anxious, still thinking, oh, gosh, you know, like this is too good to be true. And and I felt awful. I felt so sick. And um, I finally got to a point where I was like starting to believe that it was OK, just coming to the end of my first trimester. And we'd been for lots of scans because we've been in fertility treatment. We've been having scans since six weeks. So every week we've been had a scan. We could see the baby developing, getting bigger. And then we went for the NT scan, which is where they do the measurement at the back of the neck. And the measurement was huge. And they said, there's something really wrong with your baby. And the baby had a huge cystic hygroma, which is like a growth of fluid on the head. And it was as big as the baby's head, the fluid all down the back of the neck, across the abdomen um, and all around the tummy and the chest. And they said, we think it's either Turner syndrome or Pato syndrome. Either way, you've got a very poorly baby right now. So then we had... uh, the first thing we said was okay well what what can we do and they said this if this is something genetic there's nothing you can do and we start you know slowly you start the penny starts to drop and they 
I remember looking over at Gareth and he just had his hands, head between his hands staring at the floor. And I I was looking at the doctor going, what, what do you mean? Like, what does this mean? And they're saying, well, sometimes, the, you know, the babies won't make it when they present this way. They won't make it to term. They'll die in utero because they're so poorly. And sometimes they make it, and but they won't, they'll have life limiting or very life changing um, diagnosis and um, presentations. So sometimes people continue and wait to see what happens. And sometimes people will choose to bring their pregnancy to an end because, you know, for all different reasons, people have different reasons depending on their life. So we just walked out and just what, like what on earth is, uh, you know, how can this even be happening? You know, how can we be in a position where we've been through all this treatment and we're being told that, we might be choosing in air quotes to end our pregnancy, you know, just the whole thing just didn't make any sense. And um, so anyway, we had to have genetic testing and we waited for the genetic results to come back, which was just an awful time. That time, like being in limbo land, not knowing if uh, everything was going to be okay or not, or because sometimes cystic hygromas can correct themselves um and actually they they come and they and they go and they can correct and everything can be okay and it's not always linked to a genetic uh, condition often they are but not always so um anyway the genetic results came back and very sadly our baby was diagnosed with edward syndrome and they anticipated that our baby would probably die inside me before I got to 28 weeks pregnant. Um, or if by some miracle they did make it to term and be born alive and survive birth, that they would only live for hours or days and then die. So we were just in this place where, I mean, what, what do you even do with all of that information? You know, like, um, I that that time between the initial set of bad news and then having the test and waiting for the results was so distressing from as as you've said at the beginning I do have bipolar I do have mental health um challenges myself and it was breaking me and I just thought I was basically if I'd have carried on what would have happened was is I would have gone for a scan every week and the scan would have been to see if the baby had had died or not and I would have continued to get pregnant bigger and bigger and hope the baby didn't die but I would have had to walk through another nearly two full trimesters to just keep waiting to see if my baby had died inside me or not and then if the baby had died inside me have stillbirth or get to birth and then prepare myself to say goodbye watching my baby be on loads of medical equipment and not come home because they would have needed so much care and so we just felt like we were in a choiceless choice Mm -hmm. place to be fair we were giving choices that we didn't want to choose from so they didn't really feel like choices at all because none of them were choices we wanted Mm. we wanted to have our 
baby and have a healthy baby and have a baby we could bring home and live a long life with not a baby we have to prepare to say goodbye to for us it just felt like we had to choose when to say goodbye not if Mm. it was like we're not choosing if we're going to say goodbye it's just when and for so many reasons we decided to end our pregnancy which was just the most heartbreaking thing I've ever done and um walking into that hospital in the morning pregnant and walking out empty but still showing um was just yeah I've never felt emptiness harrowing hollow emptiness like that ever and it was just yeah it it was a it's definitely a life-changing experience for me um and yes, we de- dealt with it very differently, Gareth and I. You know, his his coping mechanism is to do and to, and I just needed to hide. And when death occurs within you, it's just something quite different to other griefs that I've experienced. Um, yeah, so. Unfortunately, we said goodbye to our baby. And now, instead of bringing her home, I brought her home as uh, as ashes. And she's in my home now. I have her here with me. She's behind me over there. <laughs> um, so I have her and I can smile now. It's been um, three and a half years since. So now I'm at a point where I'm in a very different space with my grief than what I was. Um, it's a grief is a beast, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So different. Uh, and I think the way you describe, you know, I will never experience and I don't know that, but the description of emptiness and mm. I can feel that as you speak it. And um, I was watching this from afar. Um, mm-hmm. You shared you shared your experience and continue to share your experience online. Mm-hmm. And um, I know for me, it's this, you want to help other people so they don't feel like you feel or have felt. And mm-hmm. so you give. And while you're giving, it's also, wait, I got to nurture me as well. Mm. Who's nurturing mm. me? Um, mm. So it's it's a it's a tough spot to choose even that to share and to do what you're doing right now with me, um, because you don't have to. Mm. You don't have it's to. A weird thing, you know. I was sharing. we did our first two rounds of fertility treatment and I had the early loss, the early miscarriage and then a failed round. And I got to a point where I was just tired of a bit like with bipolar. And I think by having bipolar has taught me a lot that when I'm pretending I'm exhausted, when I'm pretending to be okay, I am exhausted. Mm. And just, I just, I can't, that I cannot wear the mask like I used to. I just can't. And it taught me a lot. Um, and it taught me that by blowing the lid on it, it actually was healthier for me 
I'm not saying that's what everyone should do. Everyone's got to do what's right for them. But for me, and um, I then entered into the infertility space and I was like keeping it all secret. And then I went and I got pregnant and then I started having a miscarriage at my desk. And uh, someone was asking me about printer paper. And I was just thinking, I don't, I don't give a flying F about your printing <laughs> you know and I'm trying to ring my doctor and and then I just thought you know I can't I can't keep pretending I'm okay and every day is a normal day so that kind of I blew the lid on that during that infertility like going through my second round after my second round of failed treatment so from the third round I decided to start sharing so that's when I started sharing it on social media so I was sharing everything as I went so the fact that I was it just sort of happened by accident, if you see what I mean. It wasn't like I decided to share about tear from our baby loss. It just was organically happening because oh. I was sharing the fact that I'd got pregnant because on the Instagram space is a huge infertility community, which is amazing, by the way, which I wouldn't have got through any of this without all of these amazing humans. But so as it was happening, I was just sharing it real time, you know, and then I thought people I posted that morning I was going for the scan and then no update which was super unusual for me and I thought well I so I I just thought you know what I'm just going to keep sharing and I shared real time as I went and looking back now I'm really glad I did because there's so much of it that is a blur to me now and when I go back and I look in the archive of the stories I think oh my gosh like that's where I was, you know, and I feel so far away from that now in so many ways. Um, But what happened was, as a result of me sharing, I had people from all over the world messaging me saying, this happened to me 10 years ago. I've never told anybody about it because there's so much shame and stigma around infertility anyway. Plus, there's so much shame and stigma around baby loss. And there's even more when it's termination for medical reasons or maternal health reasons, because there's this implied responsibility of what or can be in certain uh, with certain people that you don't deserve to feel grief because you chose to get rid of your baby, you know, so there there can be a lot of that that comes through. So depending on your social uh, community, and where you are in the world and what that looks like which is different for everyone I sit in a very privileged space where I got grew up in a place where you can do whatever you want really as long as you don't go out hurting other people you do you (laughs) so I sit in a place where I can speak my truth it doesn't cause me risk to my job my social standing my community my doesn't bring me any trouble that's not the story for everyone. I, I deeply recognize that. But it made me even more passionate about, well, I'm going to shout loud then because there's a lot of people I know who can't because it would cost them their job. It would cost them their family. It would cost them their, if they were to speak the truth about why their babies died. And I have people in my community who haven't told anybody in their world. So their people in their world think they had a miscarriage or a stillbirth because they cannot say what really happened because they might lose everything they have in addition to losing their baby, right? So, you know, this is why I say it's important that everyone does what's safe for them and safe looks different for everybody. And my safe, I'm very lucky and fortunate that I, 
I don't have any risk. And if anyone wants to say something to me, I don't really care. I know my truth. I don't care. Say what mm-hmm. you want, you know. So, um, but I had people messaging me privately saying, I've never told anyone. This happened to me 10 years ago. I've never been able to tell the truth about what happened to my baby. I had people messaging me saying, I've just come out of the doctors. I've just had awful um, diagnosis. There's something really wrong with my baby. They're probably only going to live for X, Y, Z or, you know, all these awful things that was going on. And I was going through it myself at the same time. Mm. <laughs> and it was it brought me a great amount of comfort. And when I got to the point where I was answering messages for like four or six hours a day, I thought this isn't sustainable anymore. This is become bigger than me can't just be emma so that's when tear from our mamas was created and i thought right i will start tear from our mamas so that was about three or four months after i said goodbye to willow because my message box had just got too crazy so i set up tear from our mamas and i just started posting quotes that i had been writing either in my journal or on my stories and I just started posting those quotes and everyone that came to me I said go follow this page go follow this page because I didn't have the capacity to keep doing it one-on-one I I just couldn't do it anymore and I also recognized that there was this gaping hole of people talking about it it was like the taboo within the taboo so and the page just went crackers and then after that that's when I thought okay this needs to be needs to do more this needs to give more this needs to have more of a purpose than just an Instagram page so I set it up as a not-for-profit we became part of the baby loss alliance um we have volunteers working for us I volunteer my time for it and it's just grown and grown and grown and now we work with hospitals and clinics and they come to us for guidance on improving care pathways policies language used on their literature websites training for their staff um and it's just grown into something i just never imagined <laughs> um which is amazing and sad all at once um but it also shows me it was really needed and it wasn't there so here we are that's, i know and i think <laughs> oh emma it's just it's i love that you are the one who is saying, I can speak about this. And mm-hmm. it sounds like similar to mine, me sharing is more journal. It's more processing and, and here, this is for me. And you get a peek into yeah. my world as I yeah. choose to do this. And mm-hmm. by doing so, you it sounds like you've been able to free people of the burden of carrying these secrets that- well, yeah did not have to be so secret and it's heartbreaking well and you know the other thing that I've learned by being in this space is that uh as you know with everything that you do shame gets in the way of us processing and it gets in the way of grief so what it does is when someone I said to people you don't have to go on Instagram and share to everyone you there's a difference between being public and private And there's a difference between being supported and alone, Mm. right? So I'm public. That doesn't mean you have to be. You can be private, but please don't be alone, right? And you've taught me that. Like, I've learned that from you. 
in so many ways. I learned it from Bipolar UK, the amazing charity I work with. The two places I've learned this from the most is you, Ashlyn, and Bipolar UK, is that just don't be alone because the minute you're alone, that's when it gets really hard. The world is too heavy. (laughs) Ah, too heavy. And so I say to people, even if you, you don't have to come into a group, you don't have to come, even if you just go to a therapist that's super private, and you share it with just one person, I promise you'll feel better. Mm. You know, nobody has to know. You can be super private, but just don't carry it all on your own. That's not what we're designed to do as humans. And, and it breaks people. And um, and shame lives in the shadows, as we both know. And shame gets in the way of grief. So the thing that people going through this type of baby loss, any type of baby loss, any type of loss need to do is they need to as hard as it is, get into bed with grief and grieve. And the minute you've got a load of shame and stigma and all of that cloaking it up, your 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 grief process gets completely frozen or stunted and you get stuck. Unless you're allowed to lay down with grief and roll around with grief and grieve and be human and understand that grief is a very normal human response to devastating loss, whatever that is. And loss comes in so many forms, right? As we both know. But unless you meet grief, I say to people like a bit like bipolar, like grief is like the housemate you never wanted. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it moves in and you don't like them and they leave crumbs on the side and they come home and they have like some mad party at 2am that you told them you didn't want to have, but guess what? They're here <laughs> and they're being loud and they're waking you up and and that's grief, right? We can't say, oh, grief, can you come at 4pm on a Tuesday afternoon because it's more convenient for me. Like, it yeah. doesn't work that way. So we have to learn how to live with, we have to learn how to cohabit with this unwanted housemate called grief that moved in guess what they're not moving out either guys like grief doesn't just suddenly get better and uh i think we over medicalize grief in as much as people see grief as something you need to get better from like you're sick Mm -hmm. and i'm like guys no grief is a human a normal appropriate human response to loss like can we stop medicalizing grief and actually just say we're human did you see that thing about the whale with the calf so there's a whale that had a calf that died and it hung on to its calf dead it's dead calf and it swam with it and it swam with it and it swam with it for days and weeks and scientists were like this isn't this is no good you know and and you can't rush grief and you Mm -hmm. certainly can't rush a grief from a mother to a, a child whether that child has lived or not you can't rush that. You can't say, oh, you should separate yourself. That's You're doing something. it wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I think of yeah. grief to me is a skill and a skill that I was not taught. No. And so for me to learn how to grieve, I definitely went down that road that you're talking about of if I do this, then the result will be I'm healed. Mm-hmm. And so when the waves would come and I would be knocked down again, it was like, wait, I thought I did the thing to make this thing go away. 
And so for me, I, I'm a big believer that grief is, is a skill that we can learn that every human has to experience. And I don't know why we think it's like over there, like that's sad for Emma, but I'm mm. not, you're still going to experience grief yeah, in whatever way that is. And I believe we have micro grievances every day, every day, every day. We just don't maybe recognize it's grief. Yeah. Right. I think a lot uh, of trauma work is grief work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh. So my therapist yesterday was saying, um, we get to the medical industry and the uh, mental health in industry are actually kind of in line with the same idea of if you do this, there is healing. If you do this, you will get better. And then we have all this education and we fill ourselves with it. And there's so much disappointment mm -hmm. in realizing, wait, I was told if I do this, I would be healed. I would be better. And, you know, that can work if we break our arm, we put a mm -hmm. cast on it, mm -hmm. we start to feel better. But I broke my, my wrist and I still have some pain that comes mm -hmm. here and there, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's just this interesting place where like sitting with it i like what you're saying of really imagining it as a person and we're we have to just let that in yeah. and for me it is sitting with my feelings instead of the doing I, I like to be a human doing not a human being and so it's a that is a choice yeah you made a choice that was incredibly hard and then you chose to actually feel it. Yeah. And then you chose to I actually like it. it. <laughs> right. Like this. And I think that's sometimes the message that can be conveyed is it can be made a bit sparkly, right? Like mm. actually this isn't me saying this is okay. And this is easy. Actually, no, it's really hard and you don't have to like it. I'm not saying you have to like it, you do have to respect the fact that grief will now exist in your life. Yeah. And when there's been a significant loss in your life, grief will really show up and it's learning how to respect what that grief needs and requires from you, as opposed to trying to run away from it or beat it or, you know, conquer it. it no, we have to learn how to roll around with it. <laughs> roll around. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, last night I dreamed about my dad who passed four years ago. I dream about him all the time. And it's, it's like, wait, I used to try to wonder why am I dreaming about him? Why is it still coming up? And now I just, I wake up and I'm like, Oh, I got to see my dad. Yeah. Like yeah. it's, it's the pain has lessened for me as mm -hmm. I have just, it's just mm -hmm. part of it for me. It gives me an opportunity to think of my dad and, mm -hmm pause a little bit of my morning and, and have that space. And so, um, Miss Emma, what, what would you tell parents who may find themselves in this space where they have to make choices that are not choices? Mm -hmm. uh, what would you go back and tell you, <sighs> Gareth? I, yeah, I think I would say that parenting the, the the thing that comes through quite a lot is people say that they don't feel especially if they don't already have living children they feel like they don't deserve to be recognized as a parent mm. they 
don't, uh, you know, th- there's some sort of self-gaslighting that goes on. Um, and what I would say to that is, if I wasn't Willow's mum, who was? It's not the mum down, it's not Zoe down the street. Or They didn't carry her. They didn't make have to make these heartbreaking decisions. They don't have her ashes sitting in their home. So if I'm not her mum, who is? And would it have made me more of a mum to, you know, do, you know, there's no qualifier. Like, did I have to get to the point where I had to birth her and watch her die to become her mother? Like, is that really what people are saying? Like, when you say it out loud, it's ridiculous. Yes. It's ridiculous. Like, does, does society really expect that that's, you have to endure that suffering to become a mum? No. Well, they shouldn't. So uh, challenge some of these beliefs that come up within you. Ask yourself, if you're not their parent, who is? You'll find your answer, which can help. And the other thing is, is that now that we have a living child, um, parenting is making hard decisions a lot. Mm-hmm. So if making a decision about when your child dies isn't a tough parenting decision, then I'm not sure what is. (laughs) So uh, just in case anybody finds themselves in this space where they're trying to justify if they are deserving of assigning themselves the title of the parent to their child that they've just had to go through this devastating situation with. You are their parent Mm. and uh, nobody else is and nobody else had to go through those appointments. Nobody else had to be told by doctors that their baby had some awful medical diagnosis. You were the ones that had to go through all of that and nobody else knows the truth but you. Um, And... There's nothing to feel any shame about. In actual fact, you've been handed probably one of the toughest parenting decisions anybody would ever wish they didn't get handed, you know? Well, Emma, I am so grateful that you are willing to be the person mm-hmm. to help people not feel alone in this. And I'm grateful that you have a living cute little daughter now that you can love on and um yeah where can where can people find you so that they can be part of your community or even if they don't relate i don't Mm. have the same story as you and i follow along um Mm. where can they find you so on instagram it's emma k the letter k bell b-e-double-l-e where i just share my experience of infertility pregnancy after loss, parenting after loss. Um, And if TFMR baby loss is your story, then you can go to TFMR Mamas on um, Instagram or you can search it on Google. It will come up and everything, all the support is there for you. Um, And if infertility is part of your story, and I will add this because I feel like it's important as women because we do get burdened with the responsibility often of infertility being the woman's fault Mm. um 
part of our story after losing Willow was going through more tests. And my husband, Gareth, was told that he had amazing sperm by at least 20 people. And uh, after um, losing Willow, we went through two more failed rounds of IVF. And I just, I got told the only way we would conceive is by donor eggs. So I was happy to explore that route because I really wanted to have a living child. And that would have involved a lot more grieving, grieving of genetics, the grieving of knowing that potentially genetically I was having a child which was another woman's genetics which is complicated for any couple um so I thought I have to be sure so I then had through Instagram someone messaged me and they said Emma has Gareth been properly tested and I said oh yeah he's had a sperm analysis he's had it all analyzed they've told him it's perfect in actual fact they told him he's got amazing sperm (laughs) and I'm laughing because um Actually, there's at least 10 tests a guy needs to know he has amazing sperm. Oh, 10. I had no idea. Oh, yeah. So we did one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you'll be told they've got amazing sperm because they just look under a microscope and it looks all right. And basically what they're doing is they're saying it's like looking at the outside of a human. They've got a head, two arms, two legs. They can walk forwards. They don't seem to be walking backwards and they don't seem to look confused. They look good. That's kind of as far as it goes. And there's a few of them. But actually, to really understand the integrity of the sperm, you need to know the DNA fragmentation that's in the head of the sperm that has to be sent away. It takes a number of weeks to get those results back. You have to have, there's 10 tests. There's only three samples that need to be given, but they test them in 10 different ways. So we did this and guess what? It came back and it wasn't perfect. It was far from perfect and it can lead to recurrent miscarriage it can lead to failed IVF rounds it can lead to not getting pregnant a lot of unexplained infertility is actually because of male factor infertility and it can lead to genetic problems with babies it can lead to lots of things so we got the results back he had a very high sperm DNA fragmentation which basically means that a lot of his sperm the DNA was blown it was no good the DNA in the head of the sperm was no good. And it was because he had a varicocele, which is an enlarged vein in the scrotum, which means that the scrotum gets too hot, which means that heat ruins sperm. So we treated it. We got him on a food plan. You know, women are doing all the prep. It actually takes mm. 90, it takes 76 days to prepare sperm to have a healthy conception. Nobody knows that. Everyone thinks it's a refresh every 24 hours. It's not true. It's not true. I feel like it's a public service announcement. It's not true. <laughs> but anyway, so basically both of you, when you're trying to conceive, you should do a 90-day prep with a proper fertility nutritionist. You should, if your partner has not had their testicles checked manually and had all of these tests, you do not know it's good sperm. And we treated it. We then did our eighth round of fertility treatment. We got our only genetically normal embryo we've ever had. And then the very same month, I had a spontaneous pregnancy with our now healthy living daughter. Mm. So the other thing I would say to old Emma, and I used to beat myself up about it. I even used to turn around to him and say, go and have children with someone else, someone that can give you children. 
you know, you don't, I can't give you children. You're better off going off with somebody else that can give you what you want. I'm just a, a failure as a woman, you know, all of this. I took all of it on as my own. And actually it was both of us. So that's the other thing I'd say to myself. Unfortunately, medicine is a bit biased. It likes to blame women for lots of things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And uh, it's not true. So that's the other thing I would say. And anybody else that's in a place of unexplained infertility or anything like that, you can follow my page. I've got highlights about it. I share a lot about it. I chat a lot about sperm health. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I'm always happy to talk about it because without it, we wouldn't have our embryo in the freezer. We wouldn't have our daughter now living um, um, I might have given up. Um, who knows where we'd be right now? Hmm. There we go. Thank you, Emma. <laughs> oh, I love you. Thank you for sharing your heart and your knowledge and your experience. Thank you for taking the time to be here with me, whether I was with you doing your dishes, shopping at Target, or driving in your car. If you found even a nugget in this episode, Will you please take 30 seconds and just click on the link below and leave me a review over on iTunes or Spotify. You can also share this episode on social media or just shoot me a message on Instagram and tell me what you thought. 